overseeing that. He'll be in touch with you. And I think that's it. You can open your Bible to Galatians chapter 5, which is on page 812. Actually, we're going to be reading on page 813. Those kids are having a good time in there. Uh, if you haven't been with us for the last four weeks, five weeks or so, we've been working, we've been doing a series called The Fruit of the Spirit, and we've been working our way over and over through the different fruits of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5. And it's important when we read these, uh, we are not reading uh, goals to attain or spiritual disciplines to practice. These um, are already within us. Like we have these. Our problems have a tendency to be we shackle the Holy Spirit. We already have this happening in us. Sometimes we forget or sometimes we are deliberately whether or unknowingly inhibiting the power of God working in us and the fruits of the Spirit uh, pouring out of us. So if we're not feeling these, like I read through the, these lists, um, it's not God's fault and it's probably not anybody else's fault. It's because maybe me or you have inhibited him with some of our actions or decisions. And uh, this is an opportunity as we work through this series to be a little bit, well, a lot self-aware and to question ourselves and to challenge ourselves. Like, why is this not, a fr like, why am I not feeling patience right now or love or self-control is what we're going to talk about today. So let's read this scripture and then we're going to dive in. Uh, chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 22 through 25. Paul writes this, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, which means patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So that's our scripture for study today. We started this series with love, because love is the first thing that Paul mentions, and the reason he starts with love is he's trying to be contextually uh, attractive. He's talking to the Jews and the Gentiles. He has both in the church of Galatia. So the Jews, before love, they had the law. So they developed this system of ethics and philosophy through their, you know, their uh, understanding of God to develop something called the law. So if you look like the first five books of the Old Testament, you're going to get an awful lot of law. All right? You start reading Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus, and you're going to get like, Ten Commandments type of stuff. That's what they had before love. And so he's saying, like, look, love fulfilled law. Like the law is now uh, over. And now you have a new law, and that is love. So he starts with love which, to speak directly to the Jews, because the Jews, to the Jews, the law was like a Band-Aid. Love is like full-fledged restoration and healing. Like, you don't need a Band-Aid anymore. All right, the scar, the wound, it's gone. So he starts with that, because he wants them to know, like, when you have Christ, you now have love and healing and restoration. And then he closes with self-control, which is a Socratic concept. So Socratic meaning Socrates, Plato, Greek philosophy. Um, it was a Socratic concept that was really near and dear to the hearts of the Greek. They were really into self-control as a discipline. Um, and it's, simple, it, it, it's similar, Paul's referring to it in a similar nature that it refers to the law. He's basically saying the Socratic view of self-control is good, but now it's fully realized in the Holy Spirit, in the fact that Jesus came. Like, now you had good, now you have perfect. 
and self-control. So it, it scratches their itch. It, it's the type of letter when they saw self-control that Greeks would lean in like, oh, like this is part of the deal. All right, I, because this is important to me. And he's, Paul's saying this is good. And now Christ raises the bar of your ability to have self-control. You're not completely capable of having this. So we see something here in Paul's theology and his missiology that I think is important because he, he doesn't view humankind as being completely evil. And if you've grown up in church, that you've probably heard different. You've probably heard something about maybe total depravity or humans are completely evil and completely incapable of goodness, and what we, which is incorrect. All right, we see what Paul says here is, no, humans are not inherently born evil. They're not totally depraved. They have inherent goodness. Um, the Jews, the, the law was not bad. The law was good, but it was not perfect. The, the, the Greeks had self-control, and like Socrates and Plato, uh, their, their philosophies, good, like not evil. They were good, just not perfect. So something uh, is, is a little off when he, when he says this. So we need to walk down that path for a few minutes to figure out, um, because the Jewish law was on to something, the Greeks were on to something, uh, but there was, an, uh, there was uh, a gap, there was a, a, um, a flaw in both of their thinking. And Socrates and Plato, the Greeks, weren't completely off with self-control, like I said. And so what I'm saying is underneath the surface of what Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to the church in Galatia is that there's inherent goodness in humanity. It's how God made us. That goodness is evident, but the goodness isn't greatness. So humankind is good. God is great. Humankind is good. God is perfect. So there is a gap to be filled that, that we notice in Paul's writing. So um, my conclusions as a theologian, and I don't say that with any kind of like confidence because we're all theologians. Everybody has a, a theology, an understanding of who they think God is. Um, my conclusions is that humankind, for the most part, is born with goodness. Like that, that's what I believe. And you can disagree with that, which is awesome. We can have lots of disagreements because Jesus is at the center. Um, but I believe in it, that humankind's inherently good because in Scripture it states that we are beautifully and wonderfully made, and I don't think that's changed. I think there are flaws. I think there's cracks. There's wrinkles. But I don't think that there is um, just 100% total evil in humanity. Um, <clears throat> I also recognize the imperfection and the natural incompleteness we have. So there's a void. Um, and I think in our world we have, I don't think, I think this is a fact. You could, you could say this is an opinion, but we have a very difficult time acknowledging brokenness, particularly in ourselves or in something that might intimidate us. So, for example, I have many friends who are white uh, who refuse to acknowledge their inherent racist tendencies and inborn biases towards minorities. They just flat out refuse to acknowledge it. They don't. They, they don't think that that's played a part in how they view the world. There are people in places of power who either unknowingly or most times deliberately turn the other way when they see sexual harassment happening. And a perfect example of that is the Harvey Weinstein scandal in Hollywood. I was just reading an article um, about Quentin Tarantino, who's my favorite director, so this brings him down a notch for me. All right. uh, he basically admitted most of his films were produced by Harvey he basically admitted, like, I knew what was going on, and I turned the other way. I didn't acknowledge it. He's like, Harvey, 
he basically talked about how Harvey uh, pursued his girlfriend, Mira Sorvino, at the time, back in like the late 90s. And he knew that it was inappropriate, and he didn't say anything. He didn't out him. He didn't, he didn't point the finger and say, this is not okay. He didn't acknowledge the brokenness. He just overlooked it. I think we have a hard time with that. I think there are atheists and humanists that have a naively idealistic viewpoint of humankind, like their conclusions of humankind were left to their, if like if humankind were left to its own devices of science and reason, everything would be okay. My problem with that is it, it, it just flat out ignores history. So like for example, the Holocaust, which is essentially atheistic Nietzschean philosophy played out in real life. Like if Nietzsche did what he believed, it would look like Hitler. Like, oh, that's what that looks like. So that, that's, there's a gap there. I mean, we, the Jews had the law, the Greeks had Plato and Socrates. We have science and reason and technology and progress. None of them inherently bad. They're just not good enough. There's a gap. There's gotta be something to fill that. So none of us are perfect. As Morpheus said in the Matrix, there's a glitch in the Matrix and we have to acknowledge that. Um, Paul acknowledges this 2,000 years ago to the Jews and Gentiles. Um, and the reason he spoke to both audiences is because he wanted them to know everyone needs this. This isn't just some crutch. You know, Christianity isn't some sort of a crutch that some people need to get through life. Or this isn't some sort of a Band-Aid. This is a complete healing and restoration of how humankind is meant to operate. Everyone needs this. There's a sense of urgency to it. And that is a powerful truth that we have to acknowledge in what Paul's writing here with the fruit of the Spirit. So what is a zero in on self-control? What does Christian self-control look like? So one of the, one of the aspects of Christian self-control is that we are willing to acknowledge incompleteness, the cracks, the glitches, the imperfections, the blind spots. We are people that point that out in maybe in others, in in ourselves as well. We can't do it in others if we're not willing to do it to ourselves. So it starts there. And I think this is a major roadblock for us because our pride, uh, our, upbringing, that our upbringing that's lifted us to perhaps a numbing level of privilege or our education can all lead us to a failure of self-control. Pride, as C.S. Lewis called it, is the great sin. It's what prevents us from seeing the cracks and the glitches and the voids. We just can't see it because we're too prideful it's a block and it's a lack of control over our own pride and ego that's what shackles the holy spirit the fruit of self-control is the fact that pride pride are the handcuffs to self-control it's the primary source for a lack of self-control so what i as a as a me i would love to see us have less conversations about common ground like the weather and sports i those, I'm, I'm bored with those conversations after like two and a half minutes. I would like to have more conversations about what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. Like, where do you feel convicted? Where are you trying to change? What do you, what do you feel like God is leading you into? Those are the types of conversations that I enjoy, that I want to have. Like real deep, like where have I discovered imperfections? What sin has God revealed? Where is God trying to restore me? Where's the crack? And I'll give you a hint. It's related to pride and ego because if you can't see it, you're too prideful to see it. So it starts with it starts with confessing there's a crack. Even if you don't believe there's one in yourself. It's actually verbally saying to God, all right, look, I don't see it, but I admit it. That's where it begins. That's where, because when we have a crack, 
that's where light begins to shine through. And if we don't acknowledge it, no light will get in. We just continue to cover it up. I want God to reveal the crack. That's what we got to tell ourselves. Um, that, so examples of this. Um, I always shy away from sharing a sports example, but it's, it's uh, relevant right now. I'm a Cubs fan. They were soundly defeated by the, the Los Angeles Dodgers in the National League Championship Series. Dominated. I mean, it was really kind of a butt-kicking. But, hey, now Cubs, used to, Cubs fans used to say, hey, there's always next year. Now we get to say, there's always last year. Like, well, yeah, hey, we won the World Series. It's fine. Drink out of my World Series champs mug this morning. I'm good. All right. So there's a guy on the Dodgers named Chris Taylor. And he won the National League Championship Series MVP, which is basically for none of you, if you're not into sports, the best player in the series. He destroyed us. All right, he was our leadoff hitter. He was the first hitter of the game. Uh, really just we couldn't get him out. Like he was just a, a beast. And um, what's interesting about Taylor is the fact that he won the award for the best player in the series, but at the beginning of the season he wasn't even on the major league roster of the Dodgers. He wasn't good enough to be on their opening day roster. So he was a career minor leaguer. He's been in the minor leagues for like nine years. Like he's been in that good but not great stage for that long. Nine years playing it out. Most guys don't get a chance in their late 20s to come up, and he ends up getting the MVP of the series. And the thing with Taylor, I read an article about him this week, is that uh, in baseball, there are they talk about these different tools that you have, and he had a lot of them. He was fast. He could play multiple positions. He could play infield or outfield, which is really unusual, and he could play them both really well. He was smart. He was a good teammate. Um, he had a great arm, but he couldn't hit. And in baseball, that's a problem. You may not know much about baseball, but you do know they, you got to hit a bat with a ball or you got to hit a ball with a bat. That's part of the, that's part of the deal. All right, you got to be able to get on base, score some runs, knock people in. And Taylor knew after nine years he admitted the flaw, the crack, the weakness, and he completely revamped his swing last winter, which, again, if you're not into baseball – that is a very high-risk thing. When you've been doing something the same way for 20 years or 25 years, for however long he'd been playing baseball, and then you completely go back to ground zero, he did that last year. And, it, and a lot of times when professionals have done this, it ruins their career. Like it's kind of their last-ish effort to get to the major leagues. So he took this huge risk, and it paid off. It worked. The dude can mash. I mean, he was just hammering it. The, the announcers kept talking about his swing how fast it looked, how different it looked, how better it looked. And so when you acknowledge a crack, you know, we're not baseball players, but you, you transfer that to, you know, our walk with Christ. It's going to be scary. It probably will involve risk. All right, it might cost you something. But with Christ, it always allows the light to spill in and for healing and restoration to occur. So you have, we have, spirit-filled self-control but do you have the guts to unshackle it to admit the weakness and the flaws that are in your life that god needs to restore that's a big one for us the, the pride there's another roadblock to consider when it comes to self-control you're not holding still so it's essentially like the holy spirit is an x-ray technician and you've got like a broken bone, and all of a sudden we become like five-year-olds on the x-ray table. We won't sit still. Like they can't get the x-ray to reveal what's wrong because we're too busy 
constantly on the move, constantly distracted by some other commitment or maybe just entertainment like on our, our smartphones. But we don't sit still for God to be able to speak into us where we have cracks and where we have flaws. Busyness is the bait of Satan. Busyness is a drug. It's, uh, I don't know if this is true, but it seems as though it's very addictive. It's like heroin. Um, and we have even better methods now of getting high on busyness. We have smartphones. We have streaming media. Uh, we have all kinds of technology. We are glued to our te- technology. It rules us. It's, I mean, if you think about it or if you read enough about the design of smartphones and, and blue screen and LCD, it's literally designed to control us. It's meant to, to be like a drug. Like that's the kind of effect it's supposed to have on us. So we have that as, as a, a problem of, of being too busy to be still and to be present and to hear from God. And then on top of that, another way of staying busy is we now have actual careers. All right? Most of us live here or have moved here because of a career, because we've wanted to launch it or continue it or improve it. And D.C. is the place where you make your career. And then with the career, maybe comes marriage and family begins here. And when family begins, and if you know, if you have started to have kids, you know this, all of a sudden your parents get really weird. All right, they get really possessive, like you're not spending enough time with us. You're spending too much time with that family when we, when you be this family. And they start like, like trying to pull you because they want to spend time with the grandkids. And that kind of happens. All right, it just, this pressure of spending time with family amps up weird i don't know what happens um let's just say i enjoy the buffer zone all my family lives in indiana i'm gonna edit this part out of the sermon so they don't hear that (laughs) (laughs) my father-in-law is gonna be here next sunday do not tell him that i said this i'm just kidding i love my family but there are there there's pressure there there's pressure to fulfill expectations of what they want from you and then Going back to the career, in order for, your, for our careers to stay on track, you're given maybe certain goals, expectations, a boss to please, a ladder to climb, and it gets really easy to just kind of get swept into that state of expectation and bus- busyness. And notice that none of the things I've listed are bad. Smartphones, not bad. Jobs, family, kids, they're not bad. But it's pre- pretty easy for us to make a good thing an idol and just to begin to worship it. And we may not do that with our words, but our actions speak otherwise. And we're just too busy to sit still and to control our environment and our actions so that God can speak to us and reveal the cracks and reveal the areas where he wants to continue to heal us. And just like any addiction, um, the longer that we do something that's bad for us, the more numb we become to the effects of it. So we're going to have, the longer that we participate in that cycle the less ability we're going to have to acknowledge it's a problem which we it's like ooh, man we got to remember that like to unshackle the holy spirit we have to have some self-control and some boundaries and some margins you've got to learn how to say the word no bosses have heard that before and not fired everybody on the spot like you can say no to a boss it's possible you can learn the discipline of disappointing people I am so good at disappointing people. I can give you tips on that, on how to disappoint people. It's very, it's something that I've, like, wow, I've been doing this for a while now. Like, disappointing people with my imperfections. Um, You can learn, it is possible, to learn how to mentally and spiritually and emotionally and physically disappoint people. 
and to create margins and boundaries and to say no. And when you do that, that's when the cracks will begin to show and light will begin to spill in. So that's another, uh, so now, now the question is, all right, I'm interested. And if you're not, pretend you are. How do you do that? Like, how do you wean yourself off the drug of busyness and actually sit still? And some of you are probably thinking, like, Aaron, you've talked about this all the time for five years. Why do you keep saying it? Because you stink at it. That's why I keep saying it. All right, I'm just going to keep it real. We stink at it. I'm, I'm writing this this week, and I'm like, I'm terrible at this. <laughs> like, that's how I think. Basically, any time I teach, I think. I'm getting ready to make recommendations that I'm not even doing right now. So I'm convicted along with that. But we're not good at this. So what I would do is I would strongly encourage you to uh, like a detox. And the best way to do that would be some sort of a retreat. Like completely cut everything off all of a sudden and live life like that for like two, at least two or three days. Like get away from this location, people, responsibility, Turn your phone off. Like, make, the, make that thing a brick. Don't bring your laptop. Don't bring any technology. Like, just cut everything off and see what happens and see what God reveals. Um, because what you're doing is you're detoxing from every responsibility and everything that makes you busy. And this includes family and even kids because um, kids are a responsibility. Um, I like having my spouse there because she encourages me in these times, and she knows what, she understands what I'm going for. So that's, that's important to me. But you've definitely got to create a space where there is time for solitude and silence and stillness, because we have absolutely no idea how to sit still. It is a major problem, a major roadblock for a lot of us, and that's why I talk about it so often. So um, if I'm going to issue challenges like this, I actually have to live up to it, because I, I was thinking about it this week, and I haven't done that in well over a year. I mean, I've been on vacation, and I've been on, like, fun retreats, but I have not been on a, I am shutting everything down and, and just going to hear from God. I haven't done that in well over a year. So we're doing it in November. I'm like, well, I can't, I can't tell everybody else to do this. I'm not willing to do it. So late November, I'm taking three days, and I'm, I'm going to a cabin in the Shenandoah Valley with Carrie, and we're going to just, everything, just cut off. No technology, no nothing, no phone, no, I'm going to be dead to the world, and I'm only going to be present with Christ and with her, and that's it, and I think God speaks to us. He has consistently to me over the last, particularly over the last four or five years as I've developed this discipline of retreat, that's when God has spoken, and it's a scriptural precedent that we see all these people that God calls into his kingdom and, and into like influence, you see them retreat. You see them Sabbath. Like that is a really, there's a reason that the Sabbath command is the longest of the Ten Commandments. It's because God knows they're not going to get this. They don't know how to sit still. And so it's something we've really got to obey and be self-aware enough to knowledge, acknowledge it's a problem. Um, and so I'm, I'm heading on this retreat in a month. And the, the advantage for me is I already know where the cracks are. <laughs> he might reveal a few more, but I'm like, I know the cracks. I just haven't taken the time to let, like, soak in the light and let the light spill in and let him begin the healing process. I haven't been holding still enough. So he may, on that retreat, you're probably going probably gonna to experience some detox effects of not having 
busyness and responsibility, and it will be hard, but it will also, um, if you maintain it and you stay in it, this, the cracks will begin to be revealed, light will begin to shine through, it will happen. Uh, a great miniature version of this would be the men's retreat. If you're thinking like, I have nothing available for the next two months, uh, consider the men's retreat. Because yeah, you will be with other people, but I am going to, like we are going to talk about like, turn your stuff off. Like be present, be here, and there will be times for silence and solitude and contemplation. That'll be part of it. So you need to go. Um, and then finally, uh, cravings. We we have a hard time. We have a hard time exhibiting or, or uh, shackling the power of Holy Spirit filled self control with our consumeristic cravings. So a couple of food items in my life that I exhibit complete lack of self-control in is you put a cheese tray in front of me with charcuterie, I'm an animal. I like lose complete control over it. Like last Christmas, like Karen and Mike had a Christmas party at their house and we were there for like, I don't know, 150 minutes, 142 of them. I was standing in front of, she'll vouch for this. This is real. I stood in front of the cheese tray the entire night and just socialized from there. Like I didn't put anything on a plate. I just, I'm just, this is my spot going to hang out here for the whole night and annihilated that dairy and that meat same thing with chocolate chip cookies i have absolutely no control around chocolate chip cookies it's by kryptonite and it's ridiculous um so you know what i don't crave i don't crave cauliflower or broccoli or grilled chicken breast i don't crave those because they're not they're good for me i crave stuff that's bad for me like that's just kind of a, a human nature. And here's the rub, going from goodness to, the, to greatness with Christ, in order to go on that journey, Jesus is not only going to challenge our cravings, uh, the type of cravings that typically undermine our self-control, he's also going to present us with life options that aren't appealing on the surface. In fact, they're going to seem downright absurd. That's how he rolls. And one of my favorite authors, Francis Buford, described it like this. He said, Christianity does something different. It makes, frankly, impossible demands. Instead of asking for specific actions, it offers general but lunatic principles. It thinks you should give your possessions away. Refuse to defend yourself. Love strangers as much as your family. Behave, behave as if there's no tomorrow. These principles do not amount to a sustainable program. They deliberately ignore the question of how they could possibly be maintained. They ask you to manifest in your ordinary life a drastically uncalculating generosity. It's so thrillingly impractical. That's our faith. That's what Jesus said. You read the Sermon on the Mount, and you tell me if that's possible. That is not a to-do list or checklist. It is nuts. All right, it's crazy what he claims the kind of kingdom he wants us to live in. The only way it's possible is through the Holy Spirit leading us. And if we've handcuffed the Holy Spirit... We're not going anywhere. We're not going deeper into the kingdom. We're not going to make that a reality. So if Restore Church is at home, at some point along the journey, you're going to crave more from a church, from me, from Carrie, from someone else. It's going to, God, it's going to happen. All right, the cravings are going to challenge your Holy Spirit self-control. You crave cookies, but this is a church where we give you grilled chicken and broccoli. Like, that's just the way we roll. All right, and it's not going to be the best cooked chicken sometimes. It might be a little overdone. Like, ah, that could have been better. Because you have people in a church who are imperfect, who have flaws and glitches, and we acknowledge them. 
but it is a thrillingly impractical journey deeper into the kingdom of Christ. And I'm really excited for the journey ahead. We're celebrating five years next year or next week. <laughs> We're going to hear those five-minute stories from five RC members on how God has worked in them these past five years. It's going to be simple. It's going to be powerful. But it's an important um, marker for us to celebrate. And in November... We're going to be starting a series called Movements, and it's going to be a three-week series focused on the movements that we're going to make in 2018. And I'm really excited for the future because the fruit of the Spirit is here within us. It's happening, and we're, t- we're unshackling it. And I hope individually you will acknowledge the cracks, and you'll practice the discipline of being still, and you'll let the Holy Spirit curb those unhealthy cravings. And let's continue the journey deeper into the kingdom of Christ together. Let's pray.